the more you offer to do, the more you will get offered to do. And the more you take advantage of those opportunities, the better off your career will be. And if you can find someone who's good at what they do and learn from them, that is, that's priceless. Welcome to the Seton Hall Undergraduate Leaders Podcast. While there are a ton of other leadership podcasts out there on the interwebs, this is the only one solely dedicated to developing undergraduate leaders in numerous fields. We bring in interesting leaders from a variety of disciplines and industries to dish out practical advice for entrepreneurial undergraduates embarking on their professional careers. You'll hear from leaders operating at all levels, CEOs and other C-suite individuals who are at the top of their industries, mid-career professionals only several years removed from their college days, and young leaders in school who are already doing amazing things. We feature leaders from business, diplomacy, education, journalism, engineering, law, medicine, and the sports world. It's all part of our mission here at the Casino Leadership Institute. At Seton Hall, we make leaders better. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. So, welcome everybody. My name is Ashley Howard. I'm a junior journalism major and a student in the Casino Leadership Institute, and today I will be your host. For this episode, we are thrilled to have Brad Abramson as our guest. Brad is a two-time Emmy-winning film and television executive with strong creative and business background. He is responsible for developing and overseeing network series and specials, as well as award-winning film documentaries. He created and managed Works prestige documentary franchise. Brad Everton, welcome to the podcast. So the first question is, you got your BA in history and your master's in journalism. Can you speak a little bit about what inspired you, you to switch career paths and change like, the field that you were going into? Yeah, I really, you know, when I was in college, I went to Clark University in Massachusetts, and I really had no career plans or aspirations. I was just a guy who was at school and trying to figure things out, like a lot of people at that age. And I knew that I liked history, so I decided to major in history there. I, I knew I liked to write. I was I, I loved to read and I liked to write. I did a lot of creative writing in high school. And in college, I became a sports editor on the school paper, so I did some writing and covering sports. And I, I was getting a little bit of pressure from my dad, who's a lawyer, and he always wanted me to go to law school and become a lawyer. And mm-hmm. I kind of never, you know, I liked what he did, but I never saw myself like in a suit and a tie, going to an office all day and looking, you know, reading through books. I wanted something more interesting. And I didn't know what that was yet, but after school, I, you know, I, I looked for a job in, in journalism because that's what I had been doing. And I sort of liked doing that as a sports editor of the school paper. So I became a sports editor of a, a local paper in a small town in Massachusetts covering high school sports and writing, coming and writing about, you know, four or five or six articles a week and doing opinion pieces and going to games and getting to know coaches and players. And it was a lot of fun and getting to put the paper out on deadline. I kind of liked that you know I was making like eleven thousand dollars a year wasn't wasn't get rich doing that and I did that for about a year and then got another job a little bit closer to where I was living in Boston at the time and for you know not outside of sports I was still I was basically covering town politics in the town of Swampscott Mass for the Swampscott Reporter newspaper and I would go to selectmen's meetings and cover all the ins and outs of the board of health and do little feature stories on residents. And I like writing and doing things on deadline. I got really good at writing fast and reporting fast and, and connecting with people on a different level, you know, kind of people getting people to open up to me. That was fun to, to watch happen. 
and ask the right questions and kind of processing information and to put it into a long paper and an art or a short article. Uh, probably a point about another six months later, I, a friend of mine came to me with an opportunity. He said, he told me he was quitting his job and going to hitchhike across the country. And he asked me to join him. And I was 24 and, you know, I was, I was making, you know, not much more than what I was making in that first job. And I said, sure, let's do it. So I gave my notice and the two of us hitchhiked across the country for about six months in the summer of 1989 and had a blast, met a lot of interesting people. I realized I kind of want to do something different with my life than cover small town politics. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we traveled through the deep South. We traveled through the Midwest. We went down to the you know, Southwest through the Grand Canyon and hitchhiked and met some fantastically interesting people, a rodeo clown, a lot of people picking us up in their pickup trucks. And I took, you know, I wrote a lot about that. I took a lot of notes and kind of wrote just, you know, small pieces about that for a journal that I, that I had at the time. Landed in California and just tried to figure out my next job. And I felt like that was going to be something different. I, you know, I, I sat and I did a lot of odds and ends in Santa Barbara. It wasn't a lot of career, anything, anything. Uh, it wasn't a, a great career opportunities in Santa Barbara. They call Santa Barbara a place for the, the newlywed and the nearly dead because it's for a lot of old people live there and a lot of people just out of, out of school. And I decided, you know, I was going to go back. I wanted to do something more. I didn't know what though. But I, now that I was in-state in California, I wanted to take advantage of potential graduate degree at University of California. So I applied to the Graduate School of Journalism at Berkeley, University of California at Berkeley. And that was an amazing place. I went up and moved up to Berkeley. And I was it, while I was there, I was able to make the transition from print to television. You know, it was, it was at the time when a lot of, it was kind of a recession. This was like 91, 92. And a lot of newspapers were dying out. Um, folding, merging, but at the same time, this big 500-channel cable universe was being born, and there were stations popping up all over the place, and I could see the potential for a career in TV that would be more lucrative and more interesting than a career in print journalism. So I, I did that. I kind of did my thesis, my graduate thesis in television, and did a mini-documentary, and was able to get a job coming out of there at CNN, in Atlanta. So I picked up, packed up my bags and moved to Atlanta and started on the ground floor pulling tapes and ripping scripts as a PA for headline news. And, you know, within a short time, I was able to kind of work my way up to become writer and producer of half hour broadcasts on, on, on CNN headline news and got to know a lot of the anchors and um, a lot of the people who had been there. And CNN was a great place to be able to grow as a young as a young uh, producer, or as a, you know, a young whatever, whatever you want to do. It was really important. So if I'm talking too much, please jump no, no, in. Sorry, no. <laughs> yeah. um, that just leads me to our next question. So what is one thing you took away from the transition from uh, print to television? Like, What's your biggest lesson learned? I think it's being aware of the world around you. Like, You can go into life and in your job with your head down and just kind of keep plowing away. But, you know, one, sooner or later, Things are, you know, if the climate changes, if the country changes, if employment changes, you're going to be out of luck if you're not kind of there to kind of understand that the world is changing around you. So I think noticing that the world around me was changing and print was kind of fading a little bit and TV was booming, it was a pivot point in my life. And I think that I made the right move. So I kind of like look back for the, you always look for those moments when you have to kind of 
take stock of what's happening around you in order to make the smart decision. Right. So before working for VH1 and later A&E, you mentioned that you created content for CNN. Uh, what was the transition from news to reality TV and documentary production like? That's a great question. Well, it's, at CNN, I started off in news, like doing these short pieces for these half-hour news broadcasts and you know, challenges to write 30 seconds on what happened yesterday in the war in Bosnia. You know, it's like, how do you boil down that kind of thing into 30 seconds? And I realized I did not want to do like hard news. I didn't really like that. I was always into culture. I like pop culture. I like music. I like things that were in the world and not like hard news and war and things like that. So I made my way into some of the other departments at CNN. There was a group, there was an environment unit and I worked, I worked for there, you know, for that group covering the environment and doing that moved into, morphed into a job where I was producing long form documentaries on a variety of topics. And from there, I was able to get a job. I, I, I met the woman who had later become my wife. She was in New York at the time. We just both decided it'd be better for me to go to New York than for her to come to Atlanta. There was, right. there was more, more job prospects there. So after a while, I was able to get a job at VH1 in New York. And VH1 at the time was just the kind of uh, a station of music videos and VJs who played the music videos and a couple, they had a couple of shows. They had like a show called 8-Track Flashback, which kind of looked back on culture. And they, they had very few things besides like VJs doing music reads into videos. And I did that for a little while, but I, I kind of always, I kind of wanted to ride this line between news and culture and, and reality wasn't even a thing yet. Like this was before Survivor and some of the big, some of that first generation reality shows. But as, as reality started to be born, we took, we took notice at VH1, like every channel, like what, how do you, how do you transform what you have into some kind of reality show or documentary series? And the first thing I was able to do there outside of documentaries was a show called Hogan Knows Best, which was about the wrestler Hulk Hogan and his family. He was, I had read something in, in a paper or in online somewhere where he was a very protective father. He, his daughter, Brooke, wanted to get into show business. She wanted to be a singer and he was trying to get her a record deal. And that struck me as kind of an interesting variation to what we normally think of Hulk Hogan as this angry wrestler that's kind of like, but he was actually this really overprotective father. So I felt like that could be a good premise for a reality show. And so we built, I flew down to Florida, met with him, and we agreed to do a show called Hogan Knows Best. And it became like the number one premiere series in the history of VH1 at the time. And we did that for about four seasons. We spun off a lot of other shows around that. I continued to do a lot of documentaries and built a series of rock documentaries and, and did a series called Behind the Music, which is a, uh, kind of a bio doc series on on artists at the time. I'm always trying to kind of stay in front of the, the curve and figure out what that next piece of pop culture is that you could build into something that, that would resonate with the audience. So you mentioned that you created um, documentaries on a variety of topics. Uh, my question is, how do you decide what topic you want to make a documentary on? Well, it's first of all, I start with what interests me and then I look at what might interest our viewers. I mean, I'm obviously, I'm not making programming just for me. I'm making programming for our viewers. And I have, you have to really get a good handle on who those viewers are. And hopefully you find something in the middle that interests you both. I would, I, would, I, I would hate to do things that are just about the viewers that I had no interest in. I couldn't be passionate about a project 
if I wasn't interested in it. And so it's finding the story that will resonate and it's finding something surprising. Ultimately, I think you have to find a story that is surprising enough to pull viewers in and like they're like going to sit up from their lazy boy and take notice of what's on the air. So it's, it's finding, uh, telling an inside story of a documentary or about a subject they've never heard before or elevating that subject to a new level where you're bringing new, new pieces of information to it or telling the story in a brand new way. And it's not easy. And it's always kind of looking at, you know, being aware of cultural trends, anniversaries, you know, and, and a lot of different things that might suggest a good documentary or show. So what is the step-by-step process of creating a documentary? Well, for example, you get a subject that you like, you do some initial research on that subject, you come up with like a, a premise or a take on that subject. So you're not going to, you know, you, you want to figure out what, what your angle is on that. You're not just going to do, you know, it's not just a Wikipedia entry on a subject. You have to kind of have a certain angle on that subject. You know, if you're doing a biography on a certain hip hop artist, for, for example, you want to make sure, like, are you going to, is that hip hop artist going to participate or not participate? Hopefully they will. So you can hear their side of the story if it's about them. Are the, you know, are, is the music, are the music rights available? You have to, you know, want to be sure that you can have, you know, if you're doing a hip hop documentary that the, or a rock documentary that the music rights are available and licensable, like footage. You want to know that there's enough footage that's clearable that you can kind of make into a documentary. If you don't have any of those things, you don't have much. It's then it's interviewing, it's coming up with like an outline or a treatment. And you know, maybe that's three to five pages long on what you think the story is and how you're going to approach it. What's the kind of creative approach, what it's going to look like, you know, everything from what is the shooting style, maybe the interview setup and how you're going to tell the story visually because it really is a visual medium. And from there it's booking, booking the interview subjects, whether they're the people that, you know, the subject to the documentary or friends or family or journalists who can speak objectively about the subject doing those interviews um, getting all the, the kind of materials that we need of music rights and the footage and photos, and then going back into an edit and kind of either, you know, first you want to plot it out on paper, like what that, you know, going through, watch those tapes, see what you shot, and then kind of put that down on paper, maybe like transcribe an outline or a detailed outline or even a script of what you hope your cut will look like. And once you have that on paper, going into an edit with a really talented editor who can really take it to a, to a new level visually. And that, you know, you can, you can do it anywhere from, you know, a couple of months to a couple of years. You know, I, ideally it's a couple of months. You want to get it on the air before, while it's still relevant. And there, we've, there have been times when we've had to crash something very quickly. Like if we learned that Michael Jackson had passed away at uh, like six, six o'clock on an afternoon, and knew we had to get something right away. So you know, I called my whole team in. We planned how to do a, a, you know, a quick turn obituary special. We saw what we had in-house in terms of video and footage and interview bites, did some quick interviews, assigned everyone a different piece of the story. And you know, 24 hours later, we had something on the air. So it can be done in a lot of different ways. You know, But always looking for that spark of a germ of an idea that you can translate into something that connects with the viewers. That's the key. 
Um, if you could pick, what would you say was your favorite documentary to produce and why? Mm. That's a really, really hard question to answer. I think uh, one that I really liked, and I did recently, I'll give you two. One, one that I did recently was on Garth Brooks, and it was a four-hour documentary that aired last year. Uh, he had never told his story before and in the documentary, and we didn't know how it was going to be. He doesn't have a lot of the obvious storytelling, uh, the story points that you want, the ups and downs of someone's life. You know, if you're looking to tell a story, you want some of the drama and the conflict. And he's been a pretty solid citizen. So he doesn't have a lot of like, there's no, there's no arrest for drug abuse in his story. And what he, what made him special was his ability to communicate when he would sit down in, in a, on a chair and look right in the camera lens and communicate with the viewer at a level that I've never really seen before. And so we were blessed to be able to tell his story. And I think it resonated with viewers. And another one I look back on now, which was a lot of fun, which was a documentary on Soul Train, which we did a VH1 about seven or eight years ago. It was, we were able to get the rights to the Soul Train library of you know, videos and on, on shows. And a lot of the people at the time, Don Cornelius, the, the founder of Soul Train, the host of Soul Train, he was still alive. He was part of it. We interviewed a lot of artists and people who were on Soul Train. And it was such a fun documentary to do because all those shows were so memorable. They speak to the time of the 70s and 80s when music was so such a part of our lives. And we made a documentary that actually played at film festivals all over the world. And one of the highlights of my life was watching, sitting in a theater in Barcelona, Spain, and watching in a theater of like a thousand Spaniards, many of whom probably didn't speak English, listening to them sing along with the soundtrack to this documentary in this crowded theater and just kind of realizing like how your work connect with people a world away. Um, what do you like most about working in TV production? I like that it's something new every day. I have, I, I manage about, you know, 15 to 20 projects at any given time. So I'm not doing the same thing every day. You know, part of my job, is from a desk and here, you know, obviously in this time of COVID, we're all working from home and we're all not traveling as much, but I like here, my job lets me travel a lot, lets me meet new people, lets me learn about new topics. I love to kind of dig my teeth into something that's, sink my teeth into something that is new to me. And whenever I get, you know, whenever I tackle a new subject, I always go to Amazon and buy like five books on it so I can become an expert. I just look kind of love reading through and kind of learning about something new and then and kind of processing all that into a, a documentary. I think it's just, a again, I'm not in that suit and tie going into an office every day. I'm doing a lot of different things. It's never dull and, you know, kind of connects with people at a different level, which is fun. Um, do you ever feel like stressed working on so many projects at one time? Oh, yeah. And there's, there's always something that's going wrong. There's always a project that is, that's the stepchild. That's just <laughs> everything goes wrong on. And you, you know, you're, you know, you try to kind of, at the end of the day, tell yourself, it's just, it's just television. It's not life and death. Uh-huh. And so it's like as much as angry as you can get and as frustrated as you can get on anything in life. Right. Like that's what I tell myself. It's just TV. We'll figure it out. But, but it's stressful sometimes, especially when you're on deadline. Like there've been projects where, I'm working on it and I know the deadline is in a month and I look at the calendar, I'm like, how is this ever going to make it? 
And somehow it always does. Somehow you kind of, if you have a good team around you, they always find a way to make it work and you can always get it, get it done. So you won two Emmys for your work. How did you feel when you won your first one? Well, the first one was really exciting. It was right when we started making documentaries for VH1 and we created this shingle called VH1 Rock Docs. And the first one was about the rapper Daryl McDaniels, who's better known as DMC from Run DMC. And it was about his journey to find his, ado- his biological birth mother. He had recently found out he was adopted as a kid and never knew his biological mom and kind of wanted to go on this journey with the cameras following him. And so we followed him along. He met, you know, he met his mom. It was a really emotional, compelling, dramatic story. And we submitted it to the News and Doc Emmys, not thinking it was it had a chance because it was up against all sorts of great established programming on many networks that had done documentaries for a long time. We brought DMC with us. We had it sat at a table in our tuxes. And when they called our names, you know, the name of the show, we all looked at each other and like, what do we do now? Because like none of us, we're just going for the, for the event. None of us prepared a speech or anything like that. And I had to get up uh, and as the executive producer, I had to kind of say a few words mm-hmm. and thank the people in the audience. But I was rambling and I had no idea what I said. <laughs> So how do you feel working with people that have such um, interesting and such heartfelt stories to tell, knowing that you can bring their story to life? It's a, it's definitely a, a, an honor to do it and a, and a responsibility to tell it accurately. Like there's a lot of producers. I think producers sometimes get a bad rap for kind of taking a celebrity mm-hmm. story and exploiting that celebrity and kind of like making him look bad. And the last thing you want to do is kind of really betray a relationship that you have. You have a duty to tell an accurate and fair story. And I think you always want to do that. And you hope the the, the celebrity or whoever it is you're, you're doing a story on will be honest and candid with you. Um, so it's a, I feel like it's a responsibility to tell, tell a story and make sure you get it right. I mean, we have lawyers who look at everything and, and make sure we do. But I always take pride in the fact that I can be fair and uh and I take that seriously so my next question is if you could do anything over from the very start of, of your career until where you're at now what would it be you know I don't I don't really tend to have regrets too much because I kind of like living in the moment and appreciating the things I feel like we we do things for a reason and the path we take is you know brings you to certain places where maybe another path wouldn't have I feel like I've I've spent, I've, I've had a great time at the jobs I've had at CNN and VH1 and at AD. And I don't, there's not one thing that jumps out of me to say, I wish I had done this. I mean, I, I feel like I've been able to tell some good stories, but there's not one that I especially feel like I especially missed somewhere along the line. So you mentioned that you've read a few books. Do you have any recommendations on books that aspiring leaders should read? I try to read a lot of biographies because they tell me about people and what makes people tick. And I feel like I can be a better storyteller because if you understand the human condition and what motivates people and inspires people and the obstacles they overcome. So those, like I, I tend to, to read a, a lot of those kind of books. You know, I think if you're looking at, I think, I think if you're looking at getting into television, there are a couple of good books to read, but I feel like you could, you read books about like read, reading fiction helps you become a good storyteller and watching a lot of documentaries I think is important too. 
So what was your favorite biography to read? You know, one is uh, that's on my that's on my shelf now that I just was looking at the other day. It was on uh, Charles Lindbergh. It was a great biography. You know, everyone knows him as the guy who flew across the Atlantic nonstop solo, the first guy to ever do that. But he was just so much more than that, and he had led a very interesting life. He he later became kind of an America firster and a Nazi sympathizer before the war, and then rehabilitated his image and wrote a Pulitzer Prize winning book later on. I think he's, you know, his, his child was kidnapped from their house and killed and what was one of the biggest murder mysteries of the age. And that book kind of showed me the resilience of an American life and how, you know, if something knocks you down, you get up and move on. Who is someone that you would consider a leader that you follow on social media or has a connection with on LinkedIn? I don't do LinkedIn too much, but on social media, you know, there's a lot of people, I, there's a lot of people that are really interesting follows on social media. On Twitter, David Simon, who created The Wire, is someone I, I kind of follow. Brian Koppelman, who created Billions, is someone who's really been interesting to read. I follow a lot of political junkies because I'm obsessed with the upcoming election. And, um, you know, I, I look for people who have something interesting to say and something that, that people that open up personally and just don't use social media to promote their last latest project. What advice would you give an inspiring television producer? That's a good question. I think it's find a mentor, find like what, figure out what, where you want to work in the industry, like what kind of job you want to have in the industry and find someone who does that job and write to them or figure out how to get in touch with them, offer to work for them for free and learn from them. Like I had a mentor, you know, at CNN uh, and, and, and at BH1 who I've learned, I've learned from for years. And I feel like if you can start off as a PA or as an intern at a company that you respect that does great work and offer and kind of throw yourself in the mix and, hey, what can I do? How, how can I help? Can I watch those tapes and screen those tapes and take notes for you? You're going to kind of be seen. I tell that to all the interns that work for us. Like the more you do, the more you offer to do, the more you will get offered to do. And you know, the better, the more you, more you take advantage of those opportunities, the better off your, you know, your career will be. And if you can find someone who's good at what they do and learn from them, that is, that's priceless. So our final question is, what does your work look like in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic? It's tough right now. Like, you know, I used to, it's, I guess there's a, it, it's, you know, terrible, it's a terrible thing and we're all trying to get through it. We're working from home right now. No one's going into the office. Our office is going to be closed probably through next summer. So I'm able to do my job through the miracle of Zoom and Microsoft Teams. And I can screen cuts at home. I can do every call I need to do at home. I can kind of write scripts at home or treatments at home. I can meet people. I I feel like I'm meeting more people now, seeing them face-to-face on Zoom than I ever did walking into my office when I worked in the city. And I will say it's a bit, it's not terrible. I don't miss the commute to the city, you know, from to the east side of the city. It was like a 45 minute train ride and then a subway ride. And I sometimes in the the heat of the summer, I'd arrive to my office completely soaked from sweat because you're just, you know, you're crammed into a subway car on the train. So I don't mind working with mom. I kind of you know, we're all now trying to figure out our own work schedules and trying to figure out how to separate 
and create boundaries between our personal and professional lives. So I think it's a it's an evolution, and I think people are still learning it. But it's I don't feel like we're ever going to go back to that five day a week in the office job anymore. I think things are going to be evolved, and we'll and both employees and employers will see the value in having people work from home. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thank you, Brad, for coming to our show. And for our viewers, we'll see you soon. Thank you for having me. On behalf of everyone at the Bucino Leadership Institute, I'd like to thank all of our podcast listeners, the podcast team, as well as 89.5 WSOU Pirate Radio for allowing us to use their facilities. Follow us online at www.shu.edu backslash leadership and on Twitter at Shu Leadership. At Seton Hall, we make leaders better.